0: This is the Yahoo Finance Sportsbook Podcast. All right, welcome back to Sportsbook. We have the Super Bowl behind us. Loyal listeners know who my team is, so I'm very happy. We won't dwell on it too much. But if you thought that with the Super Bowl behind you, football is over, think again, because this Saturday, a professional football league comes to CBS. It kicks off on Saturday. The league is called the Alliance of American Football, or AAF. Maybe you haven't heard about it. Not many people yet know about it or are talking about it, but you've heard promos during the Super Bowl on CBS. Let's find out what it's all about. We've got Charlie Ebersole, CEO of the League. Hey, Charlie. Hey, how are you? Terrific. Um, Well, let's start this way. Do you think that's fair, what I just said? Do you think that uh, not many people still know about it? Uh, Has it gotten the level of buzz that you hoped? Because when I realized this thing is real, this thing is happening, wow, it's kicking off on Saturday,
1: one week after the Super Bowl, I sort of felt like, and no one's talking about it. Well, one of the things that was interesting when we were putting the league together was looking at why everyone else had failed at doing this. Every other person who's ever done this has failed. And the commonality is they all came out of the gate with, like, all this pomp and circumstance and such a big deal, and then they just cratered. And so we made a very conscious decision to not spend the type of marketing dollars that everyone else had. We had a phenomenal partner in CBS. We had a huge lead-in with the Super Bowl. We announced a partnership with the NFL, so we're gonna be on the NFL network in prime time on Saturday and Sunday. And so from our perspective, we wanted to earn our audience and get them to hear about us through the quality of the play as opposed to we're gonna have scantily clad cheerleaders and other nonsense to get people to show up. Right, it's
0: funny, uh, on this podcast, we had in Jeff Perlman a few months back and he's the author of a new book all about the USFL. Um, football for a buck because of course famously the USFL died after a lawsuit where it tried to take on the NFL over TV rights the USFL actually won that lawsuit but the judgment awarded was something like a dollar three dollars three dollars there you go uh, and when we talk about the USFL of course you know President Trump was actually involved he was a team owner but you're right I mean its death was we want to take on the NFL you guys instead have uh, a not adversarial relationship there tell me about you know when you guys first approached the NFL said we want to make this other League, because I imagine that at least at first, the NFL officials, their first gut reaction is like, no, 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 just go away. We don't want any other football leagues out there.
1: No, because the thing was, when we approached them, we were approaching them with all NFL partners. We were going to be on CBS, Bill Polian's my co-founder, who is as NFL as you get and certainly one of the most successful executives and GMs in the history of the game. He's in the Hall of Fame, Um, as well as Heinz Ward, Troy Palomalo, Justin Tuck, Jared Allen. And then on the other side, you had coaches that were all NFL coaches. The unique thing about our league is that every single coach in our league coached as a head coach in the NFL or as a offensive or defensive coordinator with Super Bowl rings. So like Tim Lewis, who's our head coach in Birmingham, who's probably the least famous of our coaches, and yet he has the most Super Bowl rings of anyone, having won them with both the Steelers and the Giants. It's so like wh- how people forget Belichick has
0: two more rings that were not <laughs> with the Patriots. They're from right. the Giants.
1: Right, right. You can count on an egg timer how long it takes someone from Boston to talk about Bill Belichick when it comes up with football. Sorry. So, I listen, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. You guys won the War of Attrition last right. Sunday. I think the thing that's interesting for us, though, so we went to the NFL, we said, look, This is complimentary. We want a partnership with you. And so the very first thing when I talked to Roger Goodell about it was I said, we have a thing called the NFL out in our contract that during our offseason, you will be able to take players and have them play in the NFL exclusively. So the number one draft pick in our quarterback draft, who is Josh Johnson, we released and he went and played for the Washington Redskins quite successfully. So,
0: when we talk about the buzz around the league or whether enough people are aware that it's happening, maybe you aren't as beholden to ratings anyway. I mean, you know, with, with NFL, ratings are always the story because, well, ratings went down for two seasons in a row and then advertisers don't like that and maybe the advertisers won't spend as much. And in fact, uh, the cost of a 30 second Super Bowl ad for this past Super Bowl was flat versus the year before. And a lot of people said, oh, you know, what does that mean? Uh, for you, how important will ratings be? I mean, if there aren't, you know, tens of millions of people tuning in, in- In the first week, is that
1: a problem or that's okay, we have the good relationship,
0: we know we're going
1: to stick around? Well, one of the reasons we did multi-year deals with all of our partners, with CBS, with Turner, with the NFL Network, was around the idea that we wanted to be a story of growth, not a story of an explosion out of the gate. Look, my dad and Vince, when they launched the XFL in 2001, they did 54 million viewers opening weekend, but by the eighth weekend, they were the lowest rated show in the history of primetime television. So you have to talk about what the story is. one of the things that I think is a huge problem with with launching alternative football leagues is you're immediately compared to what is by far the most successful entertainment product on earth. Right. They do $37 billion in revenue annually, and yet they only exist for six months. Our plan, our business model is to say, look, we're, we're capitalized for multiple years, and we're built around the idea that this is going to take five to seven years to take root. It took the MLS 22 years yep. to engage. And a- even still, you know— well, a lot smaller than the big three, but, sure, but very I would, successful. I, I would take any league where the teams are valued at $200 million Absolutely. a team. That's the funny thing about the Super Bowl. They're like, ah, ad sales were flat. True, but CBS made $487 million in ad revenue on the Super Bowl. So, right. you know, all things being equal, if you're going to call me a failure and I have 100 million viewers, I'm pretty cool with a third of the it. country watching me. Yeah. Right. From our perspective, we want to go slow and steady. It's one of the reasons we're a single entity, so that we own and control everything. Is because ultimately, while we bring in other partners, we don't want to be in a situation where the X- Expectations are disaligned with what our actual business model is which is to take some time meaning that the team owners aren't Separate or Yeah, you... exactly so the league owns all eight teams okay. So we have GM's and, and head coaches and we have a whole infrastructure in each city So it operates on its own but ultimately all the players all the coaches all the GM's all the employees of the league um our empl- our full time employees. By one entity. Exactly. Yeah. So when Centralized. Exactly. So a year ago thirteen months ago it was Bill Polly and I as co founders with one employee, this guy Tom Veet, who was is- Actually, the impetus for starting the league, when I did the 30 for 30 about the XFL, Tom was the first person that really brought up with me, how do we do this again? And we had this long conversation. So we had one employee 13 months ago. Today, we're a little over 1,100. Mm. Wow, 1,100. Now, when we talk about uh, you know,
0: players can go to the NFL after the season and, and they can kind of use this as a stepping stone to say, look at my success here, uh, one issue that I guess you've kind of successfully avoided, you sort of think, well, when a guy is on an NFL roster, even in the offseason, they tend to not want them playing other sports, right? Because, God forbid, they get injured skiing or they get injured playing pickup basketball. So, to be clear, none of these guys, when they're in season playing in the AAF, are signed to a roster.
1: I mean, if they're signed to an NFL roster, they wouldn't be playing. Yeah, it's a really unique challenge. They could have been training squad guys. It's a really unique challenge because the the way the NFL contract works is you can't be under contract to anyone else. But, of course, we want to have our players under contract. So we developed with the NFL and the NFL Players Association a very complex set of contracts that allow for a player to release from our player contract to go play in the NFL but then come back to us and play for us during our season where it's necessary and where we want it. That balancing act allowed us to give agents and players a lot of comfort. One of the primary reasons the other leagues failed in the past was because the players that would show up to play in their league weren't really realistic NFL players because anyone who thought they had a shot at the NFL didn't want to get tied down to a long contract and also didn't want to be in a league that was picking a fight with the NFL. Like, oh, yeah, I want to go play in the NFL, but this guy's running around saying the no fun league and all this other... Well, and then you get blacklisted, maybe. Exactly. You you don't want to be out there dissing it. So, -hmm. obviously, now what we wouldn't
0: see is... Guy plays in the first season of AAF, gets noticed by an NFL team, goes to the NFL. Now, why would that guy again play in the AAF the next season? Because now if he's made an NFL team— that's probably it, right? I mean, he's going to stay in the NFL. I mean, NFL. ideally,
1: you know, the, the dream of this situation to a certain extent is we discover Kurt Warner, who is hosting our show Saturday night. But you want to find Kurt. You want to find him. You want him to go to the NFL. You want him to be the poster child for why you want to play in the Alliance. We have kids like Trevor Knight and Garrett Gilbert who were really quality college players that just didn't get that opportunity in the nfl or when they went to the nfl didn't play in a system that supported them but they're really good players they scout really well every year but no nfl team is willing to take a risk on them because they haven't seen them get reps jeff fisher who's um one of our uh lead executives he's a head of football strategy one of the things he talks about in terms of math is that it takes 1500 reps for a player to really settle into a, a football professional football system And so we look at someone like Patrick Mahomes and people are like, wow, he's so incredible. They forget he took a year off and took reps all year long as the backup to Alex Smith and then got into the NFL. And so he understood NFL schemes. He understood NFL systems. Most teams don't have the luxury of allowing a player to do that. Our league offers that opportunity. Now, if a player goes to the NFL and comes back to us, they didn't work in the NFL. They didn't work in a certain system. We give them another shot to get ready. We are the league of opportunity.
0: Right. And that actually—there's a good answer, too, to those who might say, well, obviously, if it's about opportunity and it's guys who aren't in the NFL, you know, the players just won't be as good. But on the other hand, I saw a really good tweet that I think argued for why all this makes sense, and that is, uh, you know, if you look at soccer, MLS is not the only pro soccer game in town in America. I mean, there's USL and a lot of these— smaller leagues that have teams have real fan bases for those teams. And so, if you think about it, it's actually crazy that there isn't any other form of pro football in America other than the NFL. No, it really
1: doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's a, there's a gap it. here. There's a major gap in the market and it's always been something that's confused me. Ever since the XFL went away, I remember being on the field for the last game with my dad, knowing that it was going away and being genuinely confused about how something that has the level of support the NFL has, it nobody'd come along and done it correctly. The fundamental problem is is that the quality of football was never the primary focus of the XFL, the UFL, all these other brands, and they never invested in putting executives at the top. The nature of our business model, which is largely tech-focused around the technology that we're building on the field for the players to get data off the field faster than anyone's ever been able to do it before, affords us the ability to go to a Bill Polian, and to the NFL and say, we're going to fully fund this so you can do proper football because our business model isn't reliant on ticket sales and television ratings.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm also saying that to those who might say, well, they're not going to be as good, this sort of antidote is, well, if you want to watch football and you miss not being able to watch pro football on TV during this time, why does that matter anyway? I mean, I'm not saying that you would justify it by saying, It doesn't matter if it's bad. I'm just saying, you know, sure, okay, it's not guys who are at the NFL
1: level yet, but so what? Well, and that's the thing that's interesting about it is their guys—I point to Tom Brady as a great example. Tom was 199th pick in the NFL draft. It would have been very easy if he'd fallen into any other system for him just not to play in the NFL. He would have been pushed out of a system. He only had one season at Michigan where he ever really started. And so people had no idea what he would look like in an NFL system. He, He fell into the greatest situation in history, which is he found a coach that wanted to build a system around his style of play. But if he had ended up in another city, it probably wouldn't have worked. He's the greatest player of that position of all time, and yet he would have not played in the NFL because of that system. Kurt Warner, one of the four or five greatest quarterbacks in the history of professional football. Again, same thing. The nature of football is that you have 27,000 kids that graduate D1, uh, D1 athletes that graduate college in football every year, and only about 200 of them get even a shot at being in the NFL each year. So when you think about that, one-half of 1% of every available player is the only thing that's getting in there. You realize, and you're talking about a league that only has 32 teams and nowhere else for them to play. You've got no way of knowing. And I think the thing we've discovered, particularly with quarterbacks, is there's a lot of talent in places that people didn't realize. You're going to see D2 quarterbacks in our league that people passed over that I've got NFL scouts trying to get me to release right now to NFL teams, (laughs) which has been an interesting discovery. Because we have all 32 teams scouting our league because we have a complementary relationship with them. And that's tough
0: because you're saying, no, 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 we got him. Sorry, go away, but come back in, what is it, three months when our our season ends. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and and of course, it doesn't have to be the next Brady. I mean, you can point uh, to—we talked about the USFL. uh, Flutie played in the USFL. Warren Moon played in the USFL. Steve Young. Young. I mean, some of these guys who end up in AAF
1: could certainly uh, get looks in the NFL, and and who knows what could happen after that. I I think you make a good argument. I point to players like Victor Cruz and Randall Cobb, guys who— were exceptionally good in the NFL, but were in programs that traditionally wouldn't have gotten looks. I mean, Victor Cruz was unsigned. Um, And when you start to look at that pattern in the NFL, you realize the amount of undiscovered talent, these gems, these diamonds in the rough, they're they're not the exception. They're actually the rule. Mm. The majority of really quality players aren't being seen because when you think about the Power Five conferences, A lot of the guys that come out of, like, an Alabama aren't necessarily built for an NFL system. The nature of being an NFL player has very little to do with how successful you were in college. Yep.
0: Uh, Charlie, we've talked a lot about kind of how you went about recruiting the players and the, and the quality of players. And we talked about the TV deal. But if we zoom out a little bit, um, you know, and obviously you are a partner of the NFL, you know, I'm not asking to trash the NFL here, but a lot of the other new or we are launching soon, you know, in the works football leagues were born at a time when the NFL, I think, was taking particular heat, uh, not just the political stuff. But, you know, before that, there was the domestic violence issues and people said the NFL doesn't do enough on this front. Uh, you know, the NFL has sort of all kinds of Optics issues, but then in the end, most seasons it's sort of like it all kind of fades away and becomes noise. But a lot of people out there think you know it's a league that doesn't respect women enough, it doesn't discipline players well enough for certain infractions. The rules are always inconsistent. When you think about your league, even though you're trying to be a partner to the NFL, do you also think at all about um, the optics, the brand, what we stand for? You know that that kind of aspect of it, the the off the field uh, character, and do you, do you think about that? Is that a way that you might be able to attract fans that maybe have given up on the NFL, gone away from the NFL.
1: The thing I think that's interesting about the conversations around the challenges, around professional sports, but obviously specifically with football, is that most of the things people point to are symptoms of what I think is a larger problem, which is that these are systems that were built 50, 60, 100 years ago, in the case of Major League Baseball, that aren't really built for the modern era. When you think about the construction of franchises and player unions and billionaire owners and all of these dynamics and free agency All these dynamics are diametrically opposed to each other. And so when you see a player who feels like they're being taken advantage of or or that they're not being properly respected or you see an owner that might be overstepping in terms of how he's talking about what a player is, et cetera, you begin to realize that at a systemic level, the thing that's worked for the Silicon Valley startup companies where the employees have become partners within the company as opposed to you're just a cog in the wheel is huge. So one of the things I talked to our players about a lot when we structured our contracts was you guys are my partners. Partner. When the boat, when the tide rises, all the boats are coming with us. We created a bonusing structure that takes care of the players. We created a medical system for the players where not only they, but also their families are under our medical program, just like any other professional corporation would be structured. And in doing so, what we think we've done is we've aligned them with us. So, for example, players actually bonus off of charity work and community work. Not, it doesn't matter what the community work is. We support their systems. So if you want to support police and military, you want to support community relations, or you want to support movements, we designed it so that they could have a base to do that because the truth of the matter is what gets lost, in my view, in the political discourse around professional sports is that we are a country that is 50-50, more or less. And 50% of the country feels very strongly about one position and the other 50% feels strongly about the other one. But the f- football is the one place where mom, dad, Billy, and Sue all sit next to each other and watch together. And so some, sub- some subset of that feels very strongly about this side or that side. Why is it that we feel that one of those has to be the thing we lean into? Why can't we empower both if we do it in a way where the game of football between the white lines is not politicized? And so what we did is we designed it so that the bonusing structure dealt with the players both on and off the field, and we gave them the necessary voice and ability to um, enjoy the success that is born out of them building a community. I actually point as a great success story for the NFL I point to Juju Smith in Pittsburgh, a guy who built a massive following in a space that the NFL really hasn't gone into. The NBA is focused so heavily on eSports and all this other stuff. Juju, on his own, built this massive following. It's organic, organic. If one of our players goes off and does something like that, we have created a bonusing structure where they can make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars just through our system because you are lifting us up with you. And I think ultimately if you do that, you're encouraging them to be part of the family and not telling them they're just an ATM machine for us or a commodity that can be traded and used. Yeah, there's
0: a good reason why Juju is the one who gets greeted by Ninja in the NFL 100 (laughs) ad that was in the Super Bowl, which I thought was a pretty good ad. Um, You could play the anthem before games and broadcast it.
1: Uh, we're going to play the anthem. You know, we're in a two-and-a-half-hour window for production, so one of the things we want to do is create a game that was much more bite-sized for people. I, okay. a lot of people talk to me about... Um, you you asked about competition. People ask me about competition. I don't look at competition as alternative leagues. I look at competition as I want a family of four to go, and okay. they may instead go to a Marvel movie. So if I can or land it in the TV. same window. Yeah. yeah, and so if I can land it in a two-and-a-half-hour window, it helps. So in stadium, of course, we have the anthem. In fact, opening night, um, from what I understand, the flag that we're going to be using on the field is the largest American flag in Texas. Wow. That will cover the entire the entire field, which okay. will be a pretty a special moment, I think. And obviously we're the alliance of American football, so we embrace the we embrace everything that comes along with the flag. But ultimately, uh, in terms of what our responsibility is, it's to put great football on the field and have people be able to enjoy that first and foremost and not bring politics of either stripe into the conversation. I love what you said about Juju and his following in the eSports
0: world. Uh, how likely is it that some of these players can get big on social? Uh, you know, the NFL often dinged for, you know, various restrictions. I wrote about two years ago. They changed the social media policy, and a lot of people were complaining. I had some sources at teams who were saying, you know, they limit us with how much content we can post during the in-game window, and it's so stupid because you would just think more is more and more is better. But they say no; you can only each team can only do ten, you know, tweets that have video per game. It's like, uh, you know, whereas the NBA, it's all about you know fostering and and uh, encouraging players to have these big social brands. Do you expect AAF guys to start
1: building followings or to care about that? And, and how do you want to uh, encourage that? Not only that, we both. Them for doing it, so we actually we create content with the players, and we also create other content, and we give it all to them. So they have full access to our full content platform on top of everything else, where they can push it out. I, again, I, I think people like to grave dance on the NFL or to be ah, I can't believe they're doing this. They made 37 billion dollars last year in gross revenue. The next four professional sports in the United States would have to pool their resources to come anywhere near that. So I do think they're fighting a completely different game or a completely different battle than everybody else. They're not really—for the NFL, they have to see something genuinely work before they can engage with it. Other leagues have to be very creative to try to get market share. Um, The thing I like to quote is, if you took the NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and the NHL, and you put all of their individual game ratings together, you'd have to multiply them by six to get to a regular season NFL game rating. So when the NFL does things, you're talking about moving a giant ship and having to make big conversations about content. The total viewership on Verizon— Just the digital partner of the NFL, the total viewership is two-thirds of a rating of an NBA game. So it you're talking about a completely different business model, and that's why we're not competing with them. You know what I mean? Like this is an ecosystem. Football is an ecosystem. It has a big hole in it. If somebody comes along and fills it with quality football and good content, we believe we're going to grow into something. The story I want at Yahoo Finance and Yahoo Sports, et cetera, to be is about how we're quietly and slowly building our following. You referenced the USL. USL's a Soccer. Fat, yep. yeah. United Soccer League is the fastest-growing professional sports league in the United States. They have gone from uh, selling teams for um, under $500,000 originally to they're now selling teams for about $20 million. That's just in the last six years. That growth is around 5,000 fans per game. So from my perspective, they did that by creating a family event. They're in smaller markets. Their yep. tickets are about our tickets, five, You know, 15, $10 to $15. And with value pricing in the menu— we look at that as a benchmark for what we can create. We are talking about uh, whether players in the
0: AF can become stars on their own. Uh, the story with this past NFL season and, and ratings rebounding, most people you ask, of course, everyone says, well, it seems like also it helped that the politics faded away. But most football people, you know, we had Lewis Riddick uh, from ESPN on, on our program saying this. Um, we had another former player, I'm forgetting who, and everyone had the same tack, which was, it was the season of the quarterback, the young star quarterback. You know, you had the emergence of Mayfield, Mahomes, Goff, all these guys who were relatively new. They were either rookies or it was their second or third third season. They were gunslingers. They came out. And then, of course, it helped that the NFL was calling uh, pass interference more—not uh, pass interference, uh, roughing the passer more often, clearly trying to protect these guys, keep them in the game, keep them from getting injured. So I'd ask, when you think about your games, uh, how does that organically naturally develop? You know, is it going to be quarterbacks are the stars? Does every team have a couple guys that you think could emerge as the big star players? And then related to that, it made me think, well, if you're the announcer of one of these games— At first, I mean, it's like you're going from zero to one. You know, they can't say, oh, and here's, you know, uh, kicker. There are a couple kickers who come from the NFL. They'll say, oh, you might know him from the NFL, I'm sure. But when there's guys that haven't been in the NFL and they were in college, it's like, well, they better have their homework in front of them and know what to say. Because as of yet, there aren't there isn't past history
1: in the AF that they can point to and say, oh, last season set the record for this or that. Our first, um, the f- first of all, four of our eight quarterbacks were in the NFL in the last 18 months. So a lot of the names you're going to recognize. Okay. You're going to see the Trevor Knight. You're going to see the Christian Hackenberg, Aaron Murray. Yeah, Hackenberg. Oh, and, Aaron Murray, yeah. Yeah, you've got players that you're going to recognize. Um, that, that's one, uh, Mike Bercovici. So you're going to see guys you sort of recognize. But the bigger point is, and I think this is where people get lost, football succeeds when you are able to get the helmet off the player and identify who they are. What I think the great... Probably the single most effective thing my father did when he created Sunday Night Football on NBC was he did not talk about the Patriots versus the Colts. He talked about Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady, and that shifted the narrative. If you look at the last two years of the NFL, it's not that Patrick Mahomes arrived on the scene this year; it's that Andrew Luck isn't hurt. So when you you have to look at look at uh, ratings in general. There's certain perennials that are just going to get ratings regardless of how they are. The Green Bay Packers, the Dallas yeah. Cowboys. Packers Bears. Yeah, Packers, Bears, uh, Cowboys, and Patriots, they just naturally draw an audience, right? And then you've got these other uh, markets that, you know, you don't know. When Peyton Manning was in Indianapolis and he lifted up half of the AFC package, all of a sudden the yeah. ratings look better because games that traditionally wouldn't rate are doing better. So when, when Andrew Luck is lifting up Indianapolis and Patrick Mahomes is picking up Kansas City and uh, uh, Mayfield is picking up Cleveland as examples, all of a sudden marketplaces that don't work are doing better. If you look at the NBA ratings, which are way down this year, it's not because the NBA has changed. It's that LeBron James, who is lifting up a traditionally unsuccessful franchise in Cleveland is now in LA, which rates no matter or what you and I could be starting for the Lakers and we'd be popping a rating because people like the purple and gold we practically are actually I'm pretty you certain the you did, are... I'm pretty certain you did start last night for the Lakers <laughs> <laughs> but I think the thing that people don't appreciate at a fundamental level about professional sports and this is what I learned from my dad my dad was the first researcher in the history of the Olympics where he would go and find the story of the player and he would tell that story to Jim McKay and then Jim McKay would tell the story on television Storytelling is what differentiates professional sports on television from everything else. But with respect to the NFL specifically, when you get into storytelling in a sport that's naturally designed for television, it's a rectangular screen. We move left to right. The game naturally lends itself. It stops every 12 seconds. You can tell, retell the dramatic story. They start back up. They have a plethora of opportunity to come out of each play. When you're able to tell the dramatic story of that, of that game, the thing that I find interesting is the Super Bowl was obviously not that interesting this year for someone who wanted to see a lot of high scoring. But what Romo does, and Nance mm-hmm. did a great job of doing it, is he just brings so much life to what's going on yep. that even though they didn't score a touchdown for three quarters, you always felt it was just around the corner.
0: And it was still close, I always say. Oh, I mean, yeah. you never want to see a score of 3-0 at halftime. But, you know, then in the third, it was tied suddenly. So it was a close game the whole time. I
1: mean. Yeah, I, look, I, the interesting thing about the Super Bowl was, for me, um, was— <laughs> Our promo ran in it, and seventy-five million <laughs> people
0: saw that, so that was fantastic. And, and by the way, they had promoted AF a couple other times in the in the season too. Well, that was a great on part CBS. Of, Dude, I mean, CBS at some point they started a, doing it every game on they're CBS. They're the best
1: partner you could have. <laughs> think, look, no, no, think about this, right? They have every regular season weekend. They take no weekends off in the regular season, right? Then they have every round of the playoffs. They had the wild card, divisional, conference championship, and then the Super Bowl. So every single weekend they were there. And so in the last six weeks, and this was always what we had talked about with CBS, was they could just quietly start telling people, mm-hmm. hey, this thing's coming. Mm-hmm. The thing we didn't want to do is what my dad and Vince did 17 years ago, which was start hammering promos. They were running promos yeah. during the Olympics seven months like before draft- the XFL. It's like DraftKings. Yeah, too you, much. You pound people with it too much, and at a certain point in time, their expectation is so out of whack that when they show up, my dad's favorite story to tell about the XFL is they did, they did testing a week of the first game of the XFL, and something like 60% of the people... Uh, answered that they thought defensive players would be allowed to bring folding chairs on the field to hit <laughs> oh the offense God, with based right? on the promos. Which how
0: wrestling. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's
1: tough. I
0: mean, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a common refrain, but um, under-promise and over-deliver instead
1: of over-promising. Uh, the one thing that Bill Polian has drilled into my head, and I believe very deeply in is, um, if we put good football on the field, that will spread. People will hear about it, and yep. they'll be drawn to it. If we put bad football on the field, that will also spread, and people mm-hmm. will run from yep. it. The cream rises. That's right. As they say. Um, well, we've talked about, you know,
0: I liked what you said about competition being other things to watch or other things to do. It's not other football leagues that say they want to start up, too. Uh, what else are the possible... Hurdles downfalls. What's your biggest fear about what can happen to the league in the next couple of years? You said you want to just kind of grow quietly and slowly what could go wrong? What keeps you up at night as you prepare to launch in the next few days?
1: I Mean look I'll be in very good company if this thing fails I mean everyone who's failed one guy became the president the other guy runs a billion-dollar entertainment business The other guy's my father. I mean at the end of the day the graveyard of alternative football leagues is very well populated but I think the thing that scares me is just sticking to our mission, that we don't get dragged into these silly ideas like, oh, we got to get into a spending war with the NFL and try to get quarterbacks or... Whatever that is, Ultimately, this is a very, very, very fertile market because there's so little places for people to go. And you're seeing 30% of our players left the CFL to come play in our league. 70% of our players played in the NFL in the last 18 months. So we have this big group of players that can be there. If we stay true to what we're built on and we don't get – we don't trick ourselves into overthinking this. You know, quality football sells. Our business model doesn't require – day one success we're mm. building a long-term technology business that has commercial assets that go way beyond football that football just has to be the magnet we need to give people a reason to keep tuning in and coming back and i think if we put if we have a lot of parity among the eight teams so that we don't have like you know an O and eight team and a you know eight and no team in the same league um and we have quality football kind of across all of them which I, look i was at all four preseason games last week and i was genuinely impressed with the quality of football and that's hard to predict, of course. Which teams will emerge, though, is really good. I mean, you might no, but up, Steve is going to throw a happens. lot of touchdowns. <laughs> his offense was like, I, it is. I'm like, do you even have a running back on your team? Are you just going to run six out every time? Right, and then of course you know, by being on,
0: on CBS night one, uh, you're going to get a lot of people who just end up watching almost even unintentionally. Yeah. I mean, people people are sitting on the couch, and now it's eight p.m. on CBS, and whoa, whoa. football. Uh, so I do think I think you'll see a lot of that week one of people who had no idea
1: this was coming and then suddenly it's here. Yeah, I think the sampling at CBS and uh, NFL Network and then TNT, we're we're we are going to be on TNT next weekend um, just before the NBA skills challenges on Saturday night. So I think you're going to get a group of people that are going to just be like, what am I even you know, what am I seeing? And I and. It's weird as this sounds. I was in the movie business for 12 years. And we did big films and small films, and you freak out about opening weekend. Our whole business relies yeah, on opening right. weekend. I had to untrain myself of that over the last 18 months, and I would, you know, I'd wake up in cold sweats in the middle of the night and call my father and say, like, nobody knows who we are, and he's like, yeah, that's your business model. (laughs) Like, take a deep breath, breathe through it, like, this is what you have to do, because he said, look, I was there opening night. He and I were at opening night of the XFL, right? My dad went up on the roof of the stadium, and he said, as far as his eye could see, he could see cars coming. It was that scene from Field of Dreams, Mm -hmm. like, just... Tens of thousands of people, they packed that stadium. And he said by halftime, he knew he had to figure out how to shut the league down because the football was so bad. Uh, so he, his point is, like, you don't want to put a dress rehearsal on in front of 70,000 people. Right. You want them to earn it and feel it and, and come to it. And, you know, if, we, if we're if we able to maintain the level of patience and belief that we have in our investors, et cetera, which, by the way, is no small challenge, um, you do it. But Amazon was Amazon lost money for 22 years. There you go.
0: I just uh, read that book, actually, the Brad Stone book on Amazon, the Everything Store. Really interesting. Maybe one day we'll be reading about the origins of the AAF.
1: (laughs) In in 22
0: years. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Wishing you luck. Good stuff. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Okay, so it starts this weekend. You are hearing this podcast on Thursday or maybe after Thursday, and it debuts. The league kicks off on Saturday night on CBS. Then you'll be on what? TNT, CBS Sports Network, NFL Network. NFL Network,
1: Saturday and Sunday night all through the regular season. So prime time, 8 p.m. to 10.30 every Saturday and Sunday on... And, and, um NFL Network, 4.30 in the afternoon every weekend on CBS Sports Network, and then uh, Turner and BR Live on Saturday afternoons. Alright, lots of different options to watch. Charlie Eversole, thanks so much. Thank Alright, we want to hear from you. Will
0: you watch the AAF? I'd be interested to know if you had heard about it before hearing this podcast. We want to hear from you on Twitter or over email, whatever you want. Get at me, contact us at Yahoo Finance, and remember that you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on all different podcast platforms. We come out every Thursday. This is Sportsbook. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.